Hello and welcome to the first episode of Mastering Dungeons of 2024. I'm Sean Merwin here with Teos Avadia. Hey Teos, welcome to 2024. It's great to be with you in this new year. It's fantastic. I'm looking forward to this. We took a week off. We fully recharged. It's a new year, new you, new me. Mm. <laughs> and I'm excited. I, we got a new game to I, talk about. So. Yeah, I got to find the old me because I forgot a lot of what I knew. <laughs> so I need to interrogate that SOB. Yeah, uh, but it's good, it's good to be new. And yes, later in this episode, we will talk about the Blade Runner starter set. Very excited to dive into 2024 looking at a new game as we did a lot last year looking at new games. But first, we're going to get to our news and our listener corner Starting with that listener corner and a missive from our Patreon Discord uh, from A Name Apart. A Name Apart says, What do you think about having attacks and spells always do half damage and then the full damage if they hit and succeed? Uh, this seems like it would help with some of our current complaints on lack of monster difficulty and lack of player resource depletion. And it also mitigates some of the swinginess of the D20 hit or miss system and gives a much more positive valence to failures or misses. Uh, I am not opposed to any of that, but I would need to see a system do that before I can assess it in a reasonable way. And I can tell you right now that established D&D players and fans would hate it for D&D. Because it's so different from what they're used to. Just making players roll an attack roll for for magic missile, uh, you know, cause <laughs> an earthquake somewhere. I think. But yeah, there has been so much outrage about just this idea of the game not being what it has been before, right? So just sticking with D and D in general. Here's a question: uh, What's the difference between your characters doing ten points of damage to a creature? with 100 hit points every turn, or doing 20 points of damage to a creature with 100 hit points every other turn? And the answer is mathematically, over the course of thousands and thousands of battles, very little. Mm -hmm. But how does it change the way the game feels? What does it mean to the players who are, who are doing these things? Uh, it means a lot, or it can mean a lot. It can be the whole soul of your game depending on what narrative uh, outcomes that you are looking for and how you expect game masters and players to interact with your game. Uh, any any thoughts on that there, Teos? Yeah, I mean, so I don't consider myself an expert on this kind of subject. I haven't played enough with this kind of design to have a feel for it like inherently. And so I tend to agree with you that, that I want to see it and see how it plays out. Because I, I agree with you, there are so many ways that in the end it doesn't really matter. And, and it's about that feel and that round around the way it plays when, when you're having that, that gameplay. Um, and I think that, that always hitting or always dealing damage, you know, I think it depends. Like, a game when you do when you take your turn and nothing happens 
right? Because you failed to hit or the creature was resistant or maybe you didn't even get to take an action. We'll talk about that a bit. Um, you know, like that's a problem if you have to wait 20 minutes. It's not a problem if you're waiting 15 seconds, right? And that depends on how many people are at the table and, and then all the stuff of the system, right? If everybody's taking interrupts and everybody's doing bonus actions and minor actions and whatever's, you know, my swift action, now my familiar casts a spell, now whatever, well, you may never go again, right? And I've played third edition adventures where my character never went. I was in a group, uh, I was playing a ranger in a table with all wizards. And I think I, I rolled twice and each time was a one in an entire four-hour adventure, right? <laughs> because that's just the way it was. You know, they did yeah. so many things with all their things and all their actions and all their incredible spells and their summoned whatevers. And, and it was I was useless. And I was a dwarf, so I just spent yeah. my time running to the target and it was dead before I got there. And, and that's just the way the game is sometimes, right? But we can build to have it be more or less of that. It, you know, it's an interesting... Hit means different things. Mm -hmm. Hit can mean rolling a die and getting over a target number and therefore doing something as a result mechanically. Hit, narratively, you could hit something 72 times, but only once was enough to actually damage it. Mm -hmm. And in AD&D, in, in the original D&D, that's sort of the assumption. It said it right in the rules, and I still looked it up, but I didn't. But it's something along the lines of during a round, lots of things mm -hmm. happen. You move around, you you swipe, you swing, you parry, you but the role summarizes what you did. So yeah. we could make a game where narratively you could be hitting a lot, mm -hmm. but you never quite hit in a way that did the thing that caused a change in the yeah. You know, in the narrative um, artifact that, that that you create. Um, so, right, all of these questions. What do hit points mean? <laughs> Doing hit points of damage uh, with every attack may feel good, and maybe that's all you need in the game is for it to feel good. But if a if a if you're hitting and you're doing ten points of damage, but every monster has fifty thousand hit points. That hit doesn't mean that damage doesn't mean as much as it right. seems like it would. Yeah, maybe it feels good, but it, you could work the math out so it meant absolutely nothing. And what happened when Fourth Edition played around with this concept? Right, you had daily powers that mm -hmm. often would be on a miss, you do a certain amount of damage, mm -hmm. like a fireball. Yeah, and what happened? People complained that. Well, now fighters are casting fireball essentially because they're they're missing, but they're still doing damage, and that's not being. Yeah. And it and that that wasn't a small but vocal minority. That was enough people complaining that we that it became a part of yeah. the fourth edition hate zeitgeist. But you can and see now where it comes we're seeing. From. Games come back. <laughs> you can see where it comes from, right? Because, you know, if I upcast on my death cleric, you know, I love to upcast my inflict wounds spell and I'm burning some big slot. Mm -hmm. And if I hit with that puppy, I mean, it's going to be so cool. And you know mm -hmm. what I'm really good at? Rolling very poorly when that happens. And so often I'll ask, you know, if someone has right. their inspiration or whatever. I'm literally tracking all the ways that someone can give me a reroll or advantage. 
because I know I'm going to roll so poorly on that stupid thing. But that's part of the fun tension, right? And the disappointment, this is one of the things that, that often you is hard to do in playtesting and design and any of this, is that disappointment is actually fun. It's part of the fun. It's the downstroke of the fun cycle, right? And, and it can make right. sense to have that. And if you don't have that, you may end up with less fun because it may just feel all very meh, very blah, because it isn't emotionally going up and down as you play, like it, it can be good to lose, right? Or to miss or whatever. Right, both mechanically and narratively. Yeah. There, yeah. There's power in failure, there's power in, in that. But the, the important part of that is making it important mm -hmm. or sh being yeah. able to show the importance. If the importance is hidden in a spreadsheet somewhere, yes, people don't yeah. understand that, right? Yeah, that's, and that's, so you like need that. to be able to show it to the players. I think you're on to that, Sean. I think this is this is really the answer to this question, is that it's it's less about whether the exact system, but can the player tell, can the DM react to, all of the other players react to, what has happened? Is it worth doing that, right? Mm -hmm. And if it is, then you're on to something that's fun, right? Because if like if I if you sort of always hit when do I describe my monster sort of skittering away or whatever? Like, you know, maybe that creates a, a game where I'm never describing the monster avoiding your blow or countering or whatever, you know, like it's, it, it might create a very static sort of narrative um, unless you have some, something else that can fit that. Yeah. Because with, with misses, that's what, yeah. what we do as DMs, right? We, we say, you know, ah, the goblin, you know, dodges out of your way and turns towards this other player and okay now that but it misses you right as its blade smashes into your shield and that's part of the fun of how we build up the whole thing and hopefully we keep it running fast enough because we're you know got our dm skills honed and hmm. yeah yeah and this leads into our next question quite well uh, from the math the magician via the patreon discord uh, Sean said on the Eldritch Lorecast that he could spend hours on the design considerations from the question, does the stun condition belong in the game? I would love to hear you two hold forth on that. The question to what extent the game can truly engage between turns is an interesting, uh, is really interesting and important. And yes, yeah, the, the question on the Lorecast was more along the lines of, is that fun? Mm -hmm. Right? Is this stun a fun part of the game and the whenever you bring up the word fun the, the answer is it depends on the people yeah. depends on the people involved but we can talk about action denial in yeah. the game as well does it have a place in a role-playing game well there are arguments for yes and for no uh, mm -hmm. because it's a game and because it's a narrative uh construction vehicle there are answers to that um is action dial fun in a game? Yes and no. We just talked about <laughs> making failure fun, making misses yeah. fun. You can do it, uh, but unless you do it well, then it's obviously not being able to do something, especially if turns are long, may not be fun. Uh, so what I like to do sometimes is leave the leave the mechanics far, far behind and jump to why people like certain things in their mm -hmm. stories, whether it's fiction or 
movies or you know audio visual uh, yeah. media. What does action dial look like in fiction? Why is why would we like it in fiction? Well, our heroes are out there; they're fighting the wizard, and all of a sudden, the wizard casts paralysis or does something that the hero is frozen, can't do anything. Why is that interesting? Why is that fun? Because if it's done well, the writer or the actor can make us feel that sort of terror mm-hmm. at there's this huge threat coming to you and you can't do anything yeah. about it. Help. And if the writers, if if the writer does well, we're feeling that, right? Mm-hmm. We're feeling it in our soul. Oh my gosh. I've been in situations where I felt frozen and now this dragon is coming or this wizard is casting another spell. Or in, in movies or, or yeah. TV, right? The, the actor's frozen and it has this look of fear and we're like, oh, we feel it. That's, if that's what is fun in our entertainment, how do we make that fun in a role play? How often has whole person been cast on a character at your table? A, a player character. The, and the DM gets around to that person. It, and it, well, let's say five years, right? DM caps on you, you fail your save, okay, you're you're held. Uh, go around the table, okay, it's your turn. Um, how many times has the DM just said, okay, make your save? Versus what's your character thinking, right? Mm. Or asking the other players. What, you know, maybe one in every thousand games, a player will yeah. think to do that, or a DM will ask a player to do that, to to express that. Almost never, because a lot of times and a lot of players are just focused on the mechanics. Let's move on through the thing. So in that sense, there's a disconnect between why it's good in in our entertainment and why it's good in our game. And we have to ask ourselves, is it worth that transaction? Is it worth spending the the attention capital that we we have during a game to to do that and if we're playing a more narrative style game what might we give as a reward for the player that does i'm going to stop because i've been talking for a while so go it's fascinating i mean there are some things that i really love about action denial like one is i loved in fourth edition that a dragon would show up and the first thing it would do is stun you to where essentially it got two turns and mechanically what's really happening is it gets two turns but it would do it because of its frightful presence or whatever it was called stunning everybody but that action that act of telling you know you are all stunned and it go, you know, so you go through the initiative, it's its turn again, right? I love that. I miss that because it really did say this foe's different, this foe's special. And and really it was non-painful because it's just look, it's gonna go again. That's really what it is, right? Um, on the other hand, right. fourth edition would do things like with uh domination, where you would lose your whole turn and 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 get to do n- nothing in a game that could already have things like dazing and slowing and, and you know, knocking you prone and pushing you. And, and so it could be very easy that the amount of control out there, this was just like one step too much that, well, you know, you don't get to do anything because you're dominated. 
Um, and, and we came up sometimes with house rules, like in the Dark Sun organized play campaign, uh, using the official rules, we would always make our own version of domination for anything that would have dominated that allowed a player to do some things on their turn, but then you were dominated on the monster's turn, it would command you, right? And you'd, so that mitigated it a bit. You got to do a little bit, but it's, you and, and, and actually trigger into that psychology of the idea that this thing is forcing you and you're limited in what you can do because it's got this control over you. Um, but I think that in general, the action loss, it, it's hard in the way that the game, where where D&D has ended up, right? Like I think of classic editions, the AD&D, the basics, you'd cast like whole person and it'd be like 1d4 rounds, right? And often the DM would roll behind the screen and then at some point it would end. And even in third edition, there'd be like mass suggestion or something like that. I remember one adventure we played, five out of, or four out of six characters went into the other room to eat a meal at a banquet table because that's what the the thing suggested they do and yeah. so it's two characters left to fight this and that was really fun it was really thrilling and it, we had a lot of humor about the you know oh how's your wine it's delicious how's your turkey it's great you know like pass the yeah. you know custard would you I mean, you know it can be fun yeah. but i think as the additions have progressed the action the 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 math is so expected, right? It's going to be four rounds and you're going to do this and you're doing a quarter hit points to every monster every turn to where when you put somebody in the penalty box, it becomes a real drain. And so some of it is the addition's fault for sort of being so on point about everything else that now these kinds of effects stick out a bit, right? And they do. They do stick out a bit when when you're completely, you know, stunned or paralyzed or whatever and i you know i'm a, I, I roll very well when i'm a dm when i'm a player i'm horrid and i think one time on an online game my dwarf rolled 13 failures in a row to try to act you know like people would keep giving me saving throws it was fourth edition and i would fail all of them and it was like 13 failed saving throws in a row to do something yeah, that's how it goes i'm 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 personally okay with it but i think a lot of people you know i can see how they go this is dumb right this is terrible i'm, I'm all right with it and, and so that that just that was a short version of a longer discussion we can have, yeah. you know, about what what games are trying to do and how they do it. Um, this D and D is just it's the large one, but it's yeah. it's just one of many ways we, that you, you can handle. So, Sean, if you had a magic wand, would you put would you get rid of this kind of you know penalty box type effects, stunning and things like that? No, I, I wouldn't. Uh, what I would do is, for certain situations, allow you to buy out of it mm. at, at a great cost. Mm -hmm. Because what that does then is it gives the players a choice. Do you pay the cost? So it having your action denied then becomes a choice. Mm -hmm. uh, because as players, everyone's okay with losing it, it seems. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I lose hit points. Okay. Yeah. But anything else? <laughs> um, yeah, and and certain saving throws, right? Okay. Right. But anything else seems to seems to great on certain players. Mm -hmm. And so, if you want to cater to those sorts of players, then you do need to do something. And one of the things is to give them a choice. Mm -hmm. They and I bet. 
80% of players in a sort of neutral situation would be like, yeah, I'll give up one quarter of my hit points to be able to act right now. Or, you know, as long as it didn't take them to zero. Or, yeah. Yeah. Just because they, they, they want to be the heroes. They and maybe you could do act. something like after the wording could be something like after the first round, you can, you can choose to block. Mm -hmm. Yeah. After a failed yep. save, you can choose to blot and, and the effect. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Interesting. And, and I've heard people say, well, give up hit dice. You know, give up a hit die in order to make it safe. And that's okay, except hit dice mean different things in different yeah. games, as we've yeah. talked about. That's right? the If problem. you have a heavy resource management game where you take several long or short rests, then giving up a hit die could be important. If every combat you run, if every it's just like one big combat and then a long rest, you never even use hit dice. Yeah. So you could add a resource to you, the the game that is that pool that you draw from, as long as there is a risk in drawing from it. Right. Right. Yeah. That's neat. No, it's it's so, a good topic. Yeah. It's a fun topic, and you can see. I mean, I think folks listening can see how if you were charged with handling this for a an, an, an game, a variant, a new edition of D&D. Good grief, right? You could spend <laughs> weeks thinking, trying to think through this because it's, it's, it's a tough one. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you could iterate 100 times, play test 100 times, and still come out with something that half the people love and half the people hate uh, because yeah. it's never been in the game before and therefore it shouldn't be in. Who knows? But our last question comes from Megan J via our Patreon Discord. I have a player who always wants to do a, do little extra flourishes during combat that the rules don't necessarily allow or account for. He's a relatively new player, and I don't think he's trying to exploit the game. Just that he is imagining combat scenes like fights in a movie. How do I reward him for creativity in a way that feels meaningful without having to create my own extra rules for diving off tables, trick shots, comboing off other players' attacks, et cetera. And this is this is a really, really a great question. Right. And if you've DM'd, you know, for a number of years for a number of different players, especially new players, you you know you know what this is. Oh, yeah. Um so I, I it's a great question. I have four points. I'm gonna I'll give one and I'll let Teos talk uh, if if he has something. One is let the narrative be the narrative, but don't change anything mechanically. So if the player is a fighter with a longsword and it wants to jump off a table and, and attack, you can just say, great, you jump off the table and you attack. Your longsword attack includes jumping off tables and running around in circles and doing all of those cool things you do. Um, you don't have to do anything special with the rules. You can just say, yep, that's your attack is your attack. Go for it. Mm -hmm. Thoughts? Uh, I mean, it's it's interesting, right? Because what we want, when I hear this table, this is a question. I love this question because it's something that I think all DMs have to wrestle with. Because we want the players to think about their environment and do things like jump off the table. But also the rules don't give you any benefit for jumping off the table. and there is the danger at the far end of the spectrum where the player would say, cool, you bring a table. I'll always jump off of it because mm -hmm. that benefits so good. Exactly. <laughs> in an organized play, there would be a yeah. group that would do that, right? Oh, I carry their table or I have, I took the leadership feat so someone could bring a table that I can jump off of every time, 
right? Literally, that's what someone would do, right? And and that may not be your be your players. You're mm-hmm. lucky, um, but there is a little bit of that will last time. And so you you want to somewhere between not creating a, and there's that whole you know rulings not rules. You don't want to create a lasting rule that becomes an exploit that suddenly the game is you know the characters are more powerful. That is not the point. And sometimes you can you can literally have that conversation with your players and say, look, when I say a thing, acting off of responding to something like this, I am not establishing some fact that forever you can exploit. Like I'm not. I'm trying to I'm trying to work off of you. You can just break meta and say like, I or break immersion and go to the meta and say, look, I'm I'm not. You know, I'm just giving you a thing. It, I, I will do something different next time. So they know I can't just count on exploiting things. I can't unlock a thing. Right. Um, but then on the other right. side of it I, is you don't want to have it be so nothing. And my worry about just the, the number one you made, mentioned is that they go, well, I don't. What's the point if I describe what I do? Who cares? And so you do at least want to. And one thing that I'll do when I'm going to do nothing like you described is I'll have the monsters respond to it in a way that leaves the possibility that something's there, right? Like, like the ogre seems surprised by your brave move. And, and then nothing really mechanical is being revealed. But I believe that possibility that maybe something could happen, right? Because you've impressed the ogre. What does that mean? We don't know yet. And, and you know, some kind of something. Give them a little something with it, right. even if you don't give something mechanical. Yeah. No, I, I didn't mean these one through four things to be all, the only thing you do. Yeah, yeah. My first step is if someone describes something really wacky, mm-hmm. is just to say, yes, you do that. Mm-hmm. No, there's no mechanical benefits, disadvantages. Yeah. You know, you're, you're up on the balcony and you want to jump down onto someone. You use your move to jump down and then you attack. It's yeah. great description. Please keep doing that. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's just part of the attack. Yeah. And and, and that's right. That's the that's my first thing in yeah. my mind. All right, I want to hear your second. The second thing in my line is at some point you're gonna have to have a hard conversation with especially new players who want to constantly do things that are spells, but they're not a spellcaster. That are seventeenth level subclass abilities. Uh-huh. For certain classes that they want. And you're just going to have to say, listen, what you are trying to do is covered by the rules and your character can't do it right. If you want to be able to do that, here's here's the way to get that you, that access to your character for that. <laughs> I, but I can't allow you yeah. constantly to, to do this thing that – and it's, it goes back to what you said, right? Otherwise, you're all carrying tables around <laughs> and jumping up. <laughs> All bearings. So, so the, those are the first two things, right? It's sure you can do it, and it's totally normal part of your attack. Great. No, you really can't do that for these various reasons. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to get to that in between part, where it can't, it cannot be part of your normal attack. But I think it's something that we should allow. So, advantage and disadvantage are powerful tools. Giving choices for extra risks for extra reward is a great balancing fact. If you, if a player tries to do something that's in that gray area, to say, hey, listen, you can totally try that. You're going to have disadvantage on your attack. But if you hit, I will say it's a critical. 
Or mm. if you hit, I will say it next. And you're giving that choice. Now you're making yeah. it a game. But yeah. not only are you making it a game, you're making it a game where there are narrative, fun, impactful, visual, yeah. heroic, cinematic, dare I say, uh, elements to, to the yeah. game. Yeah. Yeah, a hundred percent, and that's that's I think the best way to do that as you get comfortable uh, improvising a bit as a DM is to think of it as a positive and a negative, right? That at the end of it, the game should be balanced. So if they're gonna do something cool, and you're gonna give them a reward, there probably should be some downside that's possible for it. So an easy one would be that jumping on the table would be the table's full of stuff. There's a chance you could slip and fall. Make me make me an acrobatics mm -hmm. check, right? And and now now you know, ooh, you know it's gonna be really, and 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 what I often say because I because when I say to them make me an acrobatics check, I'll say something like, but it would be really cool if you succeed, because I want people doing these right. kinds of things. I want you like toppling the pillar onto sure. the monster instead of just attacking again. I want creative play, but. It can't be that it's all exploits. It's not all, you know, milk and honey. You've got to do some, some, so there's, yeah. there's downsides, there's risk, right? And, and that's the kind of thing. And I mean, one thing I love, right? Jumping on the back of a monster. If you want to make me happy as a DM, just if it's a large creature and you want to jump onto the back, I, I love that. I think it's so cool. And, and you're probably expending movement and risk and whatever. And, and when that happens, you know, I often think to myself, what happens in movies? Well, the monster will try to bash against the pillar or they'll try to shake you off and send you flying. Mm -hmm. and, and now we start improvising with those things. Right. And that's a lot of fun, right? I do like that kind of play. And so you're yep. just wanting to find that. Like, I'm going to give yep. you a positive, but there's a chance of a negative. And, and it can play out over time. I shared on the, the Discord, I was recently watching the Acquisitions Incorporated Season 2. And in one of the episodes... Jim Dark Magic has a chance to cast a spell when two of his companions are inside a gelatinous cube. And they're pretty low level. They've they've gone down in level through time travel thing. And so there's this, it's kind of serious, like, uh-oh. And <laughs> in vintage microhulic, the spell he casts is prestidigitation. <laughs> to make a section of the cube near Bobby Zimaruski, who likes cheese. A section of the cube is flavored like cheese. And you can just see J uh, um, J uh, Jeremy Crawford's head just go like, you know, trying to think on the fly, on camera, what do I do with right. that? So the first thing he does is he gives yeah. Jim Dark Magic's player, Mike Rulick, inspiration. Right. Which actually doesn't help in this situation whatsoever, because Bobby the Barbarian is already raging inside the gelatinous cube. So. Advantage won't help. You can't just give that inspiration on. But it's just a way right. of saying, good job doing something wacky, right? And then over the next series of actions that characters take, he, uh, Jeremy goes on to give minor little benefits because of this cheese thing. Because the idea is Bobby's just sitting there suddenly eating the gelatinous cube. And, and, and there's great fun at the table, right? Like, Bobby decides he's not actually swallowing it because he does know this is an acidic gelatinous cube. So he's spitting it to the side. But all of it leads to the fact that by the time we get to Bobby's turn, Bobby is half out of the gelatinous cube and takes half damage, which means he lives. Right. And that's the whole yeah. that's the idea. Right. That if you say what was the benefit of prestidigitation, you need all these senses to describe it because it's complicated. 
and could have gone either way. Was Jim Dark Magic doing a dumb move? No, because this is a fun table, right? Was he exploiting things? No, not that either, right? And that's where you want to try to get your players and the right. DM to be in that. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and and the last point I had was exactly what you said. Ability checks are your friends, mm -hmm. uh, right? And and uh, so make that DC ten uh, acrobatics check to be able to get up, yeah. off, and then off the table. And if you fail, something bad's going to happen. And if you succeed, something good's going to happen. And that goes back to giving that risk versus reward. So, and and it's never. You can just go back to the base game. And figure things from there, right? If a if a fighter attacks for one d eight plus four on every turn, then make something else that someone tries that's similar, uh, a similar check. Instead of attacking against AC, you are making a, an Arcana check, wizard, to be able to do something funky yep. with your fireball. Right? Make it. an Arcana check. If you succeed. You do either the normal damage or you do a D8 plus four because that's what the fighter would have done if it had hit on, on yeah. there. Love it. So, you know, fall back to what you know. Right. And go right. From there. right. Uh, great question, Megan J. Thank you. And thank you to all the people who have written in uh, via social media, via our Patreon, via the Discord that we keep for our patrons. Uh, we will continue to answer those questions into 2024 but now let's get to our news there is a bit of news which we will cover as quickly as we possibly can because we have heard from itv2 about mixed rpg sales Teos, take us through this yeah you know it's a very vague thing and it's locked behind a paywall i somehow was able to see it once and then the article disappeared so a little bit is going off memory but essentially some of their reports where they do for their kind of behind their paywall uh, from gaming stores suggested that that sales were mixed um, with more, this is in, in 2023, with more declines than increases on their RPG sales. So I sold less last year than before, uh, then a, some saying more, but overall it was like it had slowed a bit. ICV2 is often really wrong. So I just mentioned this as a sort of, you know, just, you know, put a pin in it. Think about it. It's a little data point. It's very soft. It's not hard facts, whatever. But, you know, maybe things were a bit slower last year compared to the year before. We'll find out. It's all post-pandemic. A lot of things going on. The economy. I wouldn't make a big deal out of it, but just it's an interesting note. Uh, next, we have a update on Winter Fantasy. This is one of those if you know, you know things. <laughs> Winter Fantasy is a cool convention, both in terms of temperature and what goes on there. Um, it's running February 7th through 11th. It is in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, you can sign up now as of last Wednesday. You'll sign up to a live so you can buy a badge, buy, buy events. This year they have uh, Bald Man Games, who runs the convention, is running Dragonlance uh, Adventures, Moonshade Isle Adventures, the Dreams of the Red Wizard campaign, and some Planescape Adventures, uh, including the Planescape Epic. There's also other games from, from Free League. We have Esper Genesis, some Modiphius games, and some Ghostfire gaming adventures. You can still sign up for many, many of those events now. Um, and there's a link in the show notes, but it's via Tabletop Events, if you're familiar with that site. Great convention, very small, very intimate, quite cheap. 
mm-hmm. uh, both in terms of paying to play and the surrounding hotels and, uh, and food options. And it's just a great place to hang out and, uh, and play some games. With them. I'm excited because I got a next we have I got a seat at a table of mothership, which people on our discord are often talking about. So I'll get to try that out. Really excited. Uh, and then I'm playing with some uh, Mon Sherwin. I don't know if I got the name right. Running an Aurora mm-hmm. game for Ghostfire. Yeah. I'm playing Esper Genesis. I'm running the Epic. Yeah. And I'm running a bunch of Moonshays. So if you're playing the level 11 up Moonshay stuff, uh, you might have me in your DM pool. And I look forward to seeing you say hi. Remind me of your name. <laughs> what are you running, Sean? I signed up for one slot. I am running two Aurora Adventures, uh, the same thing that I ran at Origins. And uh, pre-generated characters introducing folks to the new rules and the setting uh, of Aurora. Nice. Doing that a couple times, and then playing. I'm my group from home. I'm bringing, uh, or they're bringing me one way or the other. But uh, so I'll be there playing with them, and then I've also gone off and I'm doing some other games, including one of the slots that you're running to see if I can actually get in a game where you're DMing. Wait. Tell me about Shannon Applecline's 2023 review. Yeah, Shannon's a fantastic historian. He's written great books looking at the history of the industry, and he always has a year-end review. Uh, it's now on his own uh, blogs, uh, blog website, designers-and-dragons.com. Link in our show notes. And he reviews 2023, and he always has a really nice zoom out, zoom in capability. He'll cover things that folks forget. So, and, and he starts with the notable artists and designers who passed away last year, which is always good because I don't know all of them. He has such a breadth of what he sees. It's really nice to look over all those names and and, and think about that. Um, he and, and even it, though it's sad, it's nice to recognize it, right, and think through through their contributions and how much that mattered. Um, he, of course, discusses all of Wizards of the Coast successes, the movie, Baldur's Gate 3, the postage stamps, and then the missteps, um, and how Wizards is always the center of industry attention for all those obvious reasons. Um, he highlights the successes of Free League, Matt Forbeck's Marvel Universe role-playing game, uh, multiverse, Marvel multiverse role-playing game, and others. Goes into the top crowdfunders, noting that nine RPGs topping a million dollars is similar to previous years and tended to be 5e or 5e variants. He notes that Backerkit seems to be emerging as a contender to Kickstarter. And he discusses the reaction fans have had to things like AI art from a variety of companies, the growth of OSR style and variant 5e RPGs. It's all a really good read. Um, I at times have, you know, things that I might, you know, pick a thing here but that's true of everything and i feel most people should feel that way about anything i write so it's fun it, it's thought-provoking it's it's a great write-up i love it we also heard from ben riggs who we interviewed on the show about a year ago for his book slaying the dragon and he posted some thoughts on various social media platforms where he declared quote the golden age of ttrpgs is dead uh and his analysis gained quite fervent and quite uh, rapid response, especially from industry professionals who often keep their mouths quiet about mm-hmm. these things. Uh, so if you go to facebook.com and look at ben.rigs.rights, you can get that, but it's also on- It's on the in-world too. So you, I, Mike Shea had a hilarious thing yeah. about, you could go to Facebook, but then you have to wash. 
afterwards. <laughs> that was really yeah. funny. So yeah, it, it it is on Ian World the full yeah. thing there. Yeah. And so I just want to say a couple of things about this. Yeah. Uh, writing history is hard. Mm. Uh, hindsight, despite popular idioms, is about twenty forty yeah. at best. You still have people, you know, arguing about the fall of the golden age of Rome, of Greece, of of China, of you know various golden ages. Um, but when you write history, you have to do more than quote facts. You need to write with precision. And with a wisdom that comes from experience and a little bit of humility to, to realize that you might be wrong. And details, details matter. And I'm saying all of these things in response to this because in some cases along the way here, there was a misstep in a, in a number of these categories. Uh, so just like the, the very first quote was, we are watching a bright and special time the TTRPG industry pass away before our eyes. And, and I'm like, we're always doing that, right? We're always, we're always watching things come and go. And we're watching greatness rise and then, right, opportunities squandered and, and all, all of those things. So it's sort of a vague uh, statement. Uh, I think if you're past like 25 years old, you've already experienced right? Something great falling. And it's just the way things work. Uh, and that says around the start of the 2010s, we saw the dawn of a new golden age of tabletop role-playing games. Since then, huge numbers of players have been, have found the hobby since thanks to stranger things and actual plays like critical role. And these fans discovered a vibrant and thrumming TTRPG industry. And I, I just, I'm like, maybe can you tell me, Give me any sort of facts to back this up, because Stranger Things was released in 2016, which was not the start of the 2010s. Mm -hmm. uh, Critical Role started, in, uh, the web series began uh, in March of 2015. That's halfway through the 2010s. Um, and by that time, you know, was the industry vibrant and thrumming? Well, five might have been. But I don't know. And it, that, that sort of, that statement sort of seems to imply that 5e wouldn't have, was already popular, but wouldn't have been as popular without Critical Role and Stranger Things. So I, I, I just, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'll, there was I'll a say D20. It. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I love. I love everybody to some extent, or almost everybody. Um, and, and I really appreciate what Ben wrote in his book. But Ben, do better. Like, mm -hmm. I, you're a, if you're going to be a historian, right, a person who goes through and collates facts and, and pours over sources and talks to people and interviews them and everything, great. Don't suddenly abandon all of that for this sort of lazy writing. And that's what this is. Because... The truth is, the, the industry is so complicated that if you just go to make one statement, it's probably going to be wrong unless you think through it really carefully. And he has not thought through the things he said carefully. I, I can't believe he has because of the things you're pointing out. And there are multiple versions of these kinds of weird mistakes where he hasn't done his homework. And he's a historian, you know? 
And I can understand that a historian may want to be part of the, I don't know, the, the discussion or whatever. Like you don't want to be in the background like historians usually are. You maybe want to be in the foreground. I mean, we just finished talking about Shannon's review, right? And But Shannon and John Peterson have a knack for treating their everyday conversations with the same care that they take for their historical writings. And that has not been done here. And I think that's the core behind all this is it's it's sloppy. I you know, and I hate to say that I want to say nothing but positive things about people. And again, I appreciate the book he wrote, but this is sloppy, undocumented, unsupported, weak sauce. <laughs> what else can I say, Sean? You take it. No, no, it it I I you said it more bluntly than than I would be willing to. <laughs> Um, apologies to everybody but yeah well it's it details matter right yeah knowing when the fifth edition srd was released under the ogl uh is important right because the the ogl uh the srd wasn't released until january of 2016 for 5e yeah so to say that there was a thriving or for five weeks. So to say that there what was already a thriving TTRPG industry needs to be proven. Mm-hmm. That that is not a given. Yeah. Uh, and that just to say golden age. What does that mean? Is a golden age how much money it makes? Because that's where some of us are, mm-hmm. right? We want the golden age to be this era where People make not just great games, but make livings doing these things. Or is the golden age just a the vast number of games? Uh, and I don't even disagree with some of Ben's conclusions. Uh, but just the process of getting to those conclusions yeah. uh, is either unclear or just flat wrong yeah. based on facts that are not provided or are incorrect that they yeah. are. So, you know, th- those things need to be worked out. And it, it spawned a good conversation. Uh, and yeah, it's not often part of the see. reason it spawned such a good conversation I mean, this was many because people, it was not a well-presented yeah. argument. Yeah, it's very seldom that you hear, people weren't fighting each other because everybody was essentially going, yeah, this is so wrong and it's wrong in this way. And then someone, well, it's also wrong in this way. <laughs> Right. That that was the thing. It brought everyone together. People who are diametrically opposed about lots of things were like, you know, this is really terrible. That was and, Ben's uh, secret like, cunning yeah, plan. Yeah. He wrote a piece very cleverly, masterfully, yeah. to bring the industry together. Well done, Ben. Mm-hmm. No, I yeah. I mean And so, you know, we'll we'll keep an eye on this. We'll keep an eye on how things change, but you never know that you're in a golden age until a hundred years later, and you never know when that age has ended, ever. No, no, you don't. Um, I've got a, I, I, you know, so this topic came up first. I saw it through our Patreon Discord, and and we talked about it a little there, and I talked about it with you and with other folks that are friends of ours in the industry, and 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 I actually, you know, uh, it, it's all uh, Ben Burns, not Ben Riggs, but Ben Burns's fault, uh, who's on the Lorecast podcast with you, because he said nice things about our show which thank you. That means a lot to me coming from the number one podcast. Um, I, no, I mean, no, but really, it's a really, the lower cast is awesome and I love watching it. Um, and it was very touching to hear him say nice things. 
And, and so it made me want to write a blog post, for better or worse, around this. So, so that'll come out probably around the time this airs. And, and one of the things that I looked at is, is this, these questions you brought up about, you know, what does it mean to be in a golden age and how do you even know you're in one? And I'll just share this a little bit. And I've said this before on the show, but when I started playing D&D in 1983, it was so clear to me, 100% clear, that D&D was on the rise. It was everywhere. There were, you know, big wheels toys, there were birthday plates, there were you name it, cartoon, everything. And I felt that way for a decade. And yet the year that I started playing was the first year of losing profit and losing revenue for TSR. And it was that way for years, right? I started after the peak of D&D and I couldn't see it. To me, it was the golden era. Right. It took us decades to figure out what the golden era actually was or wasn't from the perspective of revenue and how it led to this ruinous decline and sale to wizards and everything. And so things are very, you know, what is a golden era? The other thing is, if we decrease from a golden era, if the golden era stops, what does it look like when we end up? Is it as horrible as during fourth edition? I had a lot of fun during fourth edition and a lot of really great games like Numenera were made. I don't, you know. Is it as bad as the years when Apocalypse World was created? Is it as bad as third edition? Like, the, I wouldn't really describe those as bad. There were things that were good and bad about those eras, but they were really good, right? And so I don't know. And, and, and the thing is, the industry has changed in so many ways with Kickstarter and other things that going away from a golden era, it's not like we have bombed ourselves to the Stone Age, right? Where we'll drop to will be pretty darn good. Um, and that's not to say that it doesn't matter that 5e is strong or whatever, but I just the doom with which this piece was written to me was a really bizarre perspective for a historian to take. I'll leave with that. <laughs> we will we will leave it at that and get to our creator and crowdfunding news, um, starting with Bianca Bickford's new 5e adventure, The Forged Dragons on the DM Guild. Um, Bianca's done work for me at Ghostfire. She's the Senior Project Marketing Manager for Roll20. And this adventure takes place in Icewind Dale before the events of Ren Frostmaiden. In this adventure, the characters are hired by Waterdeep authorities to track down counterfeiters. And they have to go to Icewind Dale to do so. Uh, a fun little uh, adventure, maps by Brian Patterson. And you know, worked on with great love by Bianca. And so you can check it out right now on the DM skill. And we'll switch over real quick to Jeff Stevens, who has released Weapons of Legend for 5e. Um, this supplement for 5e contains 83 magic weapons. 43 have progression rules that allow a character to acquire the weapon and have it progress in power as they complete tasks, finish quests, and gain experience. Uh, each of these items also has a legend behind them. And Teos, you, what did you design for, for Jeff? I, I've had a couple of people say, is that flump whip yours? And yes, indeed. I was asked, it was all Jeff's fault. Jeff asked me to create a flump whip, and, and I did indeed do my darndest with that flump whip. Uh, I, I love it a lot. I can't wait to put it in a game. Um, yeah, it, this is a really fun book. I love it. Um, I also have started looking at Bianca Bickford's book, uh, I recommend both of these. Uh, I think they're really cool. Uh, I love the the dwarfiness of Bianca's work. I love the progression of the magic item book. So both of these links in our show notes, but you can just find them on the DMs Guild or drive through. And I would highly recommend 
uh, checking them out. Yep. Uh, tell me about the Goodbye Dungeon 23, Hello Lord 24. Yeah, so folks might remember, especially if you're on Mastodon, uh, that there was this hashtag uh, Dungeon23 uh, last year where it was like every day of the year, design a room in a dungeon. And not everybody went through, though some folks like Richard Green and, and Mike Shea, they, they did it. And Richard shared his every single day. Um, so the new one is Lore24. And this challenge uh, is by, by Yora is the idea that you come up with a general concept for a new campaign setting or take any setting you've already done some work on and you want to expand upon, and every day, write up a little something that fits into that world, right? A little bit of lore, a place, a creature, a spell, whatever. And there are some very clever things that are already out there with that hashtag, uh, lore24. And the whole idea is to, you know, get your creative muscles flowing every day, write a little something and do it. Um, I'm not personally doing this, but but it does even just reading the entries makes me think about, you know, if I were to create a campaign world, this is what it would look like. And just uh, it's it's an I enjoy these kinds of things a lot. Yeah. And thank you to everybody who's sharing them and posting them. Yeah, it's it's great. It's a great exercise. If you ever thought mm, I could do RPG design for mm -hmm. a living, uh, this, this do this and then multiply it by 10 and uh, you, you will have what it's like to be an RPG designer. We have Lamordia, the god engine from friend of the show, Megan J, whose question we answered earlier, uh, and who's had great success with the DMs Guild uh, release, Shadow of the Black Rose, now has an adventure out levels one to three. It is a one to two session Ravenloft adventure set in what Megan calls the land of snow and stitched flesh, where the unrestrained ambitions of doctors, scientists, and capitalists provide fertile ground for the machinations of the dark power. It is centered on a uh, on locating a missing scientist in order to stop a psychic entity from spreading virus style across the domains of Ravenloft. It includes six original maps with World 20 and Foundry versions, five pre-generated characters, and three new monsters available right now on the DM scale. And last but not least, to MCDM, we tip our hats to you for your $4.6 million funding for your new RPG. This is the third highest RPG crowdfunder ever and a fantastic, and we will take it as fantastic news for our entire hobby. Uh, so good job, MCDM, and all the folks there. We are looking forward to the final product and talking about this game as we talk about other games in relation to D&D. Uh, &D. And with that, we will get to our main topic today here on Mastering Dungeons. We are going to talk about the Blade Runner starter set and the adventure that comes with it called Electric Dreams. Teos, I'm going to hand over the floor to you to talk about this amazing product. Absolutely. I'm excited about this. Uh, the Blade Runner RPG was released in December 2022 uh, by Swedish RPG company Fria Ligan or Free League after a successful 1.6 million crowdfunding effort. And so, you know, it essentially felt like it launched last year in 2023 because by the time, you know, uh, everybody really got their hands on and started looking for it, looking through it, it was 2023. 
I played it last year uh, at GameholeCon, and I've started running this starter set, so I'm, I'm pretty familiar with it, and I'll probably do the, the heavy lifting on this show. Um, but the RPG is really cool, and you know, I did not back it. I wasn't sure if this was for me, but as I started reading more and more about it, I got more and more interested in this. Plus, I'd had so much fun with other free league games. And this is based on the original 1968 novel by Philip K. Dick, Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, and both movies. Um, so it's set in the year 2037 in essentially an alternate LA in that they, they you know, previous years are not our years. Uh, things happen, you know, in the 90s and 80s that did not happen in our 80s, 90s, and so on. Um, but briefly, the world has been ravaged by pollution and environmental collapse. Okay, that part's true. Um, the most wealthy travel off-world, leaving the rest behind, confined to a few large cities that haven't been, you know, blown up and destroyed by pollution and things like that. So LA is this mega city where the rich essentially build on top of the buildings that already exist. And the higher up you go, the wealthier you are. So the top people never have to go down to the ground. They just fly around in sky cars, whereas the poorest might live in stairwells near the bottom. Uh, levels. The Tyrell Corporation and later the Wallace Corporation create replicants, androids that can pass as humans unless you carefully examine them. And in the first movie, if you saw that, they have short lifespans, and that's part of the interesting question of it. Later, the Nexus 8 and 9 models live normal lifespans. In various points in history, they become illegal, then now they are legal, but there is a lot of hatred and misunderstanding towards them. And what's nice is unlike other RPGs where it just sort of feels like pseudo-racism, this goes a little deeper because of the nature of, of, of androids to ask questions about humanity. Um, we are relying upon these androids for wars, labor, even love. And when you play the game in this version, because you're after both uh, movies, you can play uh, humans that are members of the Blade Runner group of the LAPD, uh, or you can play a replicant. And your charge is to terminate the illegal older models that shouldn't be running around <laughs> and to ensure that the current Nexus 9s are working well. And so some of you are Nexus 9s. And the key setting that all of this is asking is what does it mean to be human? And, and how do you, what are the experiences you're gonna have at a personal level when you are in this world interacting with these hard choices? And everything about the rules and about the adventure is reinforcing those key pieces. So I looked at just the starter rule book, mm -hmm. but the starter set itself, which is priced at $53.39, which is often uh, available for less, has an 80-page condensed rule book, a 56-page adventure, which we will talk about later, four pre-generated characters, a color map of LA in 2037, 26 full color evidence handouts like crime scene photos, data files, maps, and more, a time tracker sheet, 70 cards that display NPCs, initiative cards, obstacles, chase maneuvers, and so on, a set of eight dice, two each of D6s, eights, tens, and twelves, which is what you need, and there are custom symbols on those dice that uh, illustrate Grits or successes. And then uh, you also get the PDFs of all the above if you buy the starters. 
There is also a 56-page hardcover rulebook DM screen and a second adventure box you can pre-order called Fiery Angels. Uh, an upcoming book has been announced that focuses on replicant uprisings and then ties into those adventures. You can look at all of that stuff on freelypublishing.com by going to the Blade Runner RPG section of that site. Yeah, and I'll say, you know, I own the, the physical version, and it is it is kind of absurd how nicely it's done, right? So you get things like a, a newspaper that you hand out, you know, like the scene starts with reading a newspaper, and you get to actually give your player the newspaper. And then they go, you know, hey, I want to know about this person. And you're like, cool, here's, you know, the information that, that you have uh, in the data bank. And, and, you know, here's the NPC you're talking to. And... You know, here's a piece of a poem that you find in a book. And, and here's the, you know, if, if if you've seen the movie with the kind of enhance joke to it, or, you know, it's not a joke in the movie, but, but you know, you can say like, hey, I want to enhance this part of this picture. And, and you can in some cases. And it's really neat. I mean, you feel so supported when you use this starter set because all the pieces there are directly around making a great experience. And that may sound like simple, but there's so many starter sets where you're like, I didn't really use this doohickey, right? And and these are a lot of doohickeys that you do enjoy using. And and again, I'm halfway through running it, and I have loved, you know, when they go like, I want to look at this thing. You're like, here's what you see, and they're like, oh, <laughs> candy. Yeah. And 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 like you say, you know, that sort of experience that you can get as the game master and then provide for your players mm-hmm. when it's done for you to such such a degree, it's it means at least a few more eyes on the game and a few more sessions that people will agree to play. Yeah. Um, so it's huge to be able to, to do that, and especially in a starter set. Yeah. Uh, so then we get an overview of the rules in the rules booklet, which we will provide to you here. Characters have four abilities. They have strength, agility, intelligence, and empathy. So each of these traits, instead of having a numerical value, has a letter value. A being the highest uh, rank in something, and D being the lowest. Each letter, A through D, corresponds to a size of of a die. So A is a D12, B is a D10, C is a D8, and D is a D6. There are skills, then, that have the same ratings, A through D, and the same die size established for each. And there are 13 skills. So you have four attributes, 13 skills. When you try to do something that's that's a challenge that you need to check to see if you can succeed, you roll the die for your ability attribute and the die for your skill to see if you succeed. Now tell me about what you need to do to succeed. Yeah, so so you need at least a six on either die to succeed. And if you fail, then we're supposed to dig into that narrative. Um, but you also can push the roll, but you might lose resolve. And if you're a, uh, a replicant, you can push twice because you can kind of dig deeper through your circuitry. Um, if you roll a 10 or higher, it counts as two successes, or you could have succeeded on both dice. Two successes is a critical sex, uh, success. And for non-combat, the GM can pick a benefit. For combat, <laughs> this is where the game gets brutal. Uh, you might you know, 
hit break someone's arm or you might give them a headshot and it's over for that target. And the same thing is true of characters. So <laughs> combat, ouch. Um, but that kind of success, fail, critical success is a big part of the, the game, making it fairly swingy and interesting uh, to kind of paint this dark, dire future, I guess. Um, there is advantage. Ad advantage means that the smallest of your two dice, you roll that twice. Um, and so you could get more than two successes. Uh, disadvantage removes the smallest die that you would roll. And you also have specialties. And we've seen this in other games where, you know, uh, I think in Fate it's called uh, a trick, maybe. Mm. You know, it's something that's a very specific mm -hmm. bonus that you can get if you do something quite simple, or not quite simple, but quite specified. Mm -hmm. Similar to a feat, maybe, yeah. in, in D&D. &D. Um, and you also have health and resolve. Health is your ability to take physical damage. Resolve is your ability to take mental stress. Uh, if you are doing something and, and you are shot, if you are punched, you take health damage, physical mm -hmm. damage. And then if you... Um, you know, if you fail certain things, if you try, if you push your your roll and you roll a one, um, then you take mental stress, which counts down against your resolve. And if I recall correctly, uh, what about if, downtime? I was going to say with resolve, I, I think right. it also can be a little bit like, you know, folks might be familiar with Call of Cthulhu, where being presented with a certain situations can can hurt your resolve mm -hmm. um, as, as well, which is right. kind of interesting. There's a table of, of things that will sap your resolve, okay. like yeah. witnessing a, a horrifying event, being tortured. Yeah. Uh, those good. things will, uh, will I hurt thought I remembered resolve. that. Good, good. Yeah. And yeah. so so it's really it, it, both of them are, are interesting in how they play their roles. And again, health is, is important. But, you, you know, some situations can come up where it's it's a, you're going to die in a few rounds if you're not uh, quickly cured or taken to a hospital. Um Downtime is fascinating because of, of how important it is and how it plays into the overall game where time is tracked in shifts. And it's a really interesting if you think about, you know, what else could we do around long rests? Well, here's one possible way. Um, so there are four shifts per day and you're supposed to spend one of them resting. And when you do something, it's generally going to require a shift to travel there and handle that thing. And so a shift will have passed doing that And the game. In fact, often encourages you and the starter set for sure to split up and go find out you know what look for clues in different places so two of you might go to one place and one to another and one to another and that is what you're doing during that shift so in theory you're going to take a shift to rest somewhere during the day if you don't you're going to lose resolve um, some characters have special ways to mitigate it and keep going um, and that's example of a specialty. So like I played one and one of the pregens has sort of the idea is that you're this grizzled veteran. And so you can just sort of tap into your pack of smokes and just, you know, you can get rid of that resolve loss or, or ignore it when you take a shift. Like you just you're hard in that way. And that's kind of a, a fun way that the specialties kind of feel, help color your, your character. So the other thing about downtime is that when you rest, the game encourages you to uncover clues or encounter something related to your past. And downtime can be going to a rave party. Like if that's how you recharge, then that's what you're doing, right? Or you might actually just be sleeping or you might be getting drunk because you have a problem, right? It's that kind of game. 
Um, and so you may, the, the DM is encouraged to decide what plays during downtime, which can be a key memory being unlocked. If you think of the movie, there's a really interesting sort of unicorn scene. That's the kind of thing that can happen. And so the adventure actually has a table of downtime things that can be generic, but they can also be sort of clues to the adventure. Um, you might meet somebody that's a key relationship or something like that. So those are all interesting ways that the, the, the DM kind of furthers the narrative even during the downtime, which is very different than just, you know, taking a rest in a dungeon. Uh, and I like that a lot. Yeah, tell, tell me about these humanity points, because it's, that's interesting in the sense that you can play a human or a replicant. Yeah. But the replicant, in some ways, is more human than humans, <laughs> um, or it can be played that way. I, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's an interesting argument. I um, The humanity points are cool. What I like most about humanity points are that they are a thing that's being tracked somewhat in opposition to promotion points. And so, you know, all of this is you are a Blade mm -hmm. Runner working for the LAPD and you, you're kind of like almost the elite forces of the cops, right, with the specific task around replicants. And so you have abilities and permissions that other cops don't. And you, but you're being watched by all of your chain of command and in particular the, the deputy chief who's above you. So when you get sent out to do things, you have choices. And in any scene, you know, the DM's supposed to sort of say, like, okay, you uncovered all these clues. Do you upload that all to the LAPD mainframe? And, you know, that clue may include somebody who's a possible replicant uh, from an older model that should be hunted down and retired. Do you upload that? And if you do, well, promotion point, because you're doing your job finding those terrible replicants that need to be ended. But if you don't, you get a humanity point because you're like, you know, I want to know who this person is before I decide whether to retire them. And so that kind of compassion type thing is woven into the game with these kind of questions of how to handle things. And this starter set does a very good job. You know, we talked about like for Planescape and, 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 and when we we're at Gamehole, how does a setting or an adventure teach you to run the game? And this starter set is an absolute example of you know, it, it shows the DM how to create hard moral choices and this juxtaposition between getting promoted, which can lead to skill increases and other things, sort of sort of XP, if you will, right? Or humanity that is then gonna give you different benefits uh, over time. And both the replicants and the humans can can gain these humanity points uh, as they're wrestling with these questions. Um. If you're used to D&D, you're used to one style of gameplay. And mm -hmm. part of the problem with new games isn't the problem with the games. It's a problem with the experience of the people running or playing the games, trying to run the mm -hmm. game like a different game. Yeah, sure. So when we say something like you can push roles, since that's not a part of D&D, you may think, well, I don't want to do that. Mm. Or um, you don't see the importance of doing certain things. This game expects you to push roles. It expects you to push roles a lot. Part of the uh, challenge of the game is in some points, your opponent can push, but you can't. So if it's your turn, 
and you're having an opposed check, you can push, but they can't. And then vice versa. If it's their yeah, turn and yeah. they attack you, they can push, but you can't. So, and then how that works mechanically and what are the benefits versus the down uh, the downside of doing these things and the points that are added to the game, such as humanity points and and those things to to show but to mechanically show yeah. as you were saying what the setting and what the game expect you to do is is super interesting yeah and and so two two other quick little bits of that promotion points allow you uh to in, to learn a new specialty so kind of the feats um humanity points allow you to increase your skills so they kind of do different things and you ideally kind of want both of them if you were to meta play it but i think the game does a good job of not encouraging that um and and as you said replicants have one thing that's interesting with humanity points they take baseline tests periodically and they may fail them and failing them right. gives you a humanity point because the reason you're failing it is you're a little too human right kind of the idea um which right. is kind of fun and only human only replicants can can take these baseline tests and, and fail them um which is really kind of neat um and then things like interacting with your key memories and things like that give you many points. And all of these systems do a very nice job of, of kind of getting in your head as a player or GM and encouraging you to kind of think through, like it's almost like you're, you're playing, you know, Harrison Ford as a Blade Runner and, and thinking to yourself, you know, how do I feel about this situation? And, and at least in my experiences of, of, of running a game and playing a game, in both cases, people are really very good about doing what their characters should do and getting in the head of that character because of all these systems. So I, I, I'm very impressed with how this all comes together. Um, yeah, really neat. Yeah. And, and you mentioned in the past that the, the characters have key memories, key relationships, as well as I forgot what's called like a physical object that you can interact with to sort of give, give a role-playing thing. Yeah. And, and, and the, uh, the funny part is even androids replicants are given these key memories even though they're not real yes so yes uh you know even even the replicants can can go back and remember their mother even though they don't have a mother <laughs> right uh, it's amazing and and, and, uh, and the game put like you know we're gonna avoid uh so far spoilers to the adventure though later we'll have to get into them in a bit um right. but you know the adventure does a good job of saying well what does that memory mean and could that memory even be a problem um to you and 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 that's a really neat concept right and and so it's not just the humans who are wrestling with what it means for the replicants to to you know what rights do they have what what are they doing that's real or not real the replicants are also dealing with the what am i what's inside of me what does my key memory mean or not mean? Is it even a threat or a danger? You know, is it a liability? It's really fascinating, right? So let's now get into the game loop, if you will, the, the rules about sitting down and playing the game and what happens. When you enter combat, they have initiative cards. So you don't roll initiative, mm -hmm. you draw initiative. And the game, at least the uh, starter set, comes with cards numbered 1 to 10. Yeah. Although they say you can use a deck of playing cards and aces 1 up to 10 take out the face cards. Uh, 
So you know, up to 10, you take these and you, you flip them over. You draw one and you flip them. And that's the order that you go in for that entire combat. At least that's the base way that you're supposed to play. So if yeah, you draw if you, one, congratulations, you you go yeah. first. And if you have advantage, you draw two, which is kind of fun, and take the, the highest, which is kind of neat. Yep. And if how they work surprise is mm -hmm. if you surprise someone, you just get number one. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and, uh, and they have one. then from everyone else has to just draw draw normally, which is interesting. Um, then they give optional rules for drawing either secretly uh, revealing the initiative. So on the first round, you don't know who what the order is. Uh, so you say, anybody have one? Okay, yes. <laughs> Flip it over, you go first. Okay, anybody have two? Nobody has two. Anybody have three? Three? Okay, you go next. And you don't know uh, right off the bat. And then they, there was an optional rule for reshuffling and redrawing every round mm. uh, which is which is an interesting you know if if we're talking about D, &D we've talked about a hundred reasons why you shouldn't do that <laughs> uh so when i saw that i was like huh, i wonder how that would work in this game if you if you were 10 this round and won the next round right, how right. much of a huh. how much of a story and game mechanical challenge would that be yeah, that's interesting. I haven't thought about that, Sean. That's a good point that the story of like switching that up could actually be quite fun. When I ran our first session, I did not uh, change up initiative and, and we didn't when I played at Game Hall. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, another system that's interesting is they have a chase system. It's not totally unfamiliar from, say, fifth edition's chase system, um, but, but uh, it has um, a built in kind of table that you look on to determine what kind of things are happening. And you're choosing strategies, which reminds me of Spycraft and how it handled stra uh, uh, chases. So you do things like you say, OK, I'm I'm the, uh, the 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 person who's fleeing. And so you choose a strategy that is available for that role. And then you're the person who's pursuing. So you choose a, a pursuit strategy. I forget the exact name. And and uh, and then the, the DM picks a sort of obstacle that shows up from an eye, which in the starter set, you get a deck for all these things. So you, as DM, draw your your art, your obstacle, and that may be really bad if you if you chose a particular strategy, right? Which is neat. Uh, and also, you know, shout out to, this is even just the starter set. It has like such amazing art um, throughout the book. And and the, the, the rule book, if you buy the core, uh, hardback book it's even more gorgeous um which is is really makes it a joy to read through all these systems too there's a system of money which is abstract so you're expected that you have all the basic things that you need to survive you don't need to keep track of money to buy it but you i believe have connections a connection mm -hmm. skill so you can make a role to see if you are able to get some advanced equipment. And also your promotion points will give you the ability to go to the LAPD and say, hey, I need improved gear yeah. in order to do my job. So that's similar to fate in the sense that they also have like, some games have a wealth yeah. uh, ability so that you are making checks to, to get goods rather than keeping track of money. 
Yeah, it's good in that, you know, if you want a bowl of ramen, we don't need to worry about it. If you want to try to uh, bribe somebody, then you just spend what's called a chin yen point, sort of like Chinese yen. Um, and, and that just covers whatever that fee is, right? Um, and similarly, if you want to buy gear, you'll probably spend a chin yen point. Or if you're requesting it, then you'll spend a promotion point. And, and so it becomes just a little simpler. And, and there, there is gear detailed, but it's not like a game like Spycraft or Shadow Run where you have, you know, tables and tables of things. There are a few options, and and we don't get overly bogged down with it. Every PC has a gun. Uh, what the flying cars are called spinners, so you just have one, uh, which is the point of that is it lets you split up easily, right? I'm going to go to this part of LA. You're going to go to that part. That's fine. We all have flying cars, um, and a personal device that's a kind of combination phone, camera, data upload, search tool. So it lets you do the enhanced kind of part of, of Blade Runner. Um, lets you, you know, film something and, and of course, then upload it to the mainframe uh, for those promotion points if, if you're going to play it that way. Um, it, it, it's nice. I think it's a nice balance of it's not so abstract that it's no fun, but but uh, but you don't sit there trying to figure out what kind of scope you're going to put on your pistol kind of thing. <laughs> right. Uh, anything else to talk about in terms of the basics of the game before we get to the adventure? Yeah. Let's get ready for some spoilers. Okay. And hey, everybody. Guess what? Um, we actually went pretty long on that recording, so we're going to just cover the rules this time. And next time, you will get the adventure coverage. We'll get into all the details of what Electric Dreams provides as an adventure experience using all these cool rules. Well, Teos, thank you for sharing your love and your knowledge of this starter set and this game with us. And thank you to all our listeners out there. We also want to give a special shout out to our patrons. Our patrons keep us going, and we really do appreciate it, whether you are a Master of Dungeons supporter, a Master of Realms supporter, who gets a shout out in our show notes, or our Masters of the Multiverse patrons who get individually acknowledged right now. Keith Ammon of the Monsters Know What They're Doing. Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Seth Eckel, Andy Edmonds at nerdronomicon.com. Nathan Fuller, The Mighty Jerd, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, John Hurst, Chad Jackson, Brian King, Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover, Chad Lynch, The Mathemagician, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, John Molly, Falcon Neal, Mike Olson, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Robert Pasley, Vladimir Prunner from Croatia, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Ross Sandberg, Andy Shockney, Krishna Samose, Grace, Joe Tyler, James Walton, Graham Ward, and Chris Weber. Thank you so much. We would appreciate your support in that same way, and you can give it by going to patreon.com slash masteringdnd and giving us a little bit of your hard-earned money as well as your attention in this Year of Our Lord 2024. That's patreon.com slash masteringdnd. Also, if you want to help out, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or via whatever means you listen to our podcast. And you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, which would be helpful as well. Teos, where can people find you and your new and upcoming work on social media? Find me on alphastream.org that is the place you can find the quick links to all of the planescape episodes we covered so if you're running that or want to remember whether you should run it um, you can find direct links to our show notes if you're a patron subscriber to each episode 
uh, and the summary of all the advice we gave. So check that out at alphastream.org. Sean, where are you? You know where I am. I am on the social medias at Sean Merwin, whether it's Twitter or Bastodon or Blue Sky. Um, you can also follow the show on those uh, platforms as well. You can join our community and ask questions via our Patreon. And we have a wonderful Patreon Discord channel where we discuss all of these topics with our subscribers. And you can also leave comments on the Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel. That's YouTube at Mastering Dungeons. So, Teos, we have gone into the future, the dark, dark future, especially in L.A. What are we going to do now? Uh, well, I'm going to stop thinking about Golden Ages, and I'm going to log into my work so I can earn some promotion points. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm going to look at everyone around me and wonder if they're a replicant. And then sort of wish I were. <laughs>